Hi, everyone. We have a quick announcement before the show today. SmartLogic, the custom software shop behind this very podcast, is hiring for a mid-level Rails or Elixir developer. Our team is fully remote, and this position is open to applications from anywhere in the United States. You can read the full job description and apply at smartlogic.io slash jobs. Okay, now on to the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Alex Hausen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Sandy Miet. Hey, Sandy. Hey. And my producer, Eric Ostrich. What is up, Eric? Not much. Delightfully here. This season's theme is Be Magic, and today we're joined by a special guest, Chelsea Troy. Welcome, Chelsea. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Just to kick things off with a basic question, how did you get yourself into programming? Sure. Well, I had taken a couple of classes when I was in college and had really enjoyed it at that time. But it's an interesting thing for me to think about now because now, so I work as a programmer and I also work as a programming educator. I'm an instructor in the master's program in computer science at the University of Chicago. As I'm thinking about my pedagogy and the way that I teach programming, I think a lot about the programming classes that I took in college and the things that made them inspiring and made me want to be a programmer and also the things that made them difficult and made them, and ultimately I did not come out of college with the intention to be a programmer. I came out with the intention to do something else. I got back to programming after having had starts at a variety of other different careers. It was something that I remembered that I really liked and always kind of wanted to come back to. But I have maybe an advantage insofar as that I think I could enjoy probably most things that I had the opportunity to improve at. And so I think programming was one of a number of professions where I would have been really happy. And I also wanted job security. So like I said, had started in a number of different professions that have much lower job security than programming has. And after experiencing that for several years and trying to make ends meet from job to job for a long time, programming seemed like something that would offer that security in a way that I was looking for at the time. So that's how I ended up here. That makes a lot of sense. I think like my parents also pushed me to be an engineer for that job security. And then like I quickly realized that job security is only as secure as you can make it for yourself. So It's an interesting time. It's an interesting world. So you said you could be happy doing anything. So what was making you excited about being a programmer specifically? I am not one of these people who started writing Visual Basic when she was 11 years old and just really loved it or something like that. For me, programming was the thing that maximized the equation that I was optimizing for at the time of job security, maximum job security with the minimum amount of expenditure to go back to school and learn how to do it. Another profession that's famous for job security is being a doctor, but that requires going between a quarter of a million dollars and a half a million dollars into debt in the United States and eight to 12 years of your life. And so I was thinking about a whole bunch of different options and programming was the one that felt accessible to me. And it's something that I think is valuable 
for folks who are getting into programming to hear and to talk about, because I feel that the dominant narrative around why somebody becomes a programmer is that their parents had a computer when they were growing up, or they had a computer when they were growing up that they played on from ages 10 to 15 and started hacking on stuff and they got into it for the passion. And that's a fine narrative. And I don't think there's necessarily a problem with it. I think that there is a problem with privileging that narrative over other narratives. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that that route into programming requires an amount of access from a very young age that a lot of people don't have. One of the things that's very nice about programming at the moment is that at least so far, it remains more accessible than a lot of other professions who folks don't, who do not come from a lot of privilege already, which is not to say that it's not easier to get into for folks who come from a lot of privilege. Of course it is. And that having been said, there is less of a guaranteed educational and financial burden associated with becoming a programmer. And I think that there are benefits to that and there are downsides to that. One of the benefits of it is that it creates an opportunity for people of a much broader diversity of backgrounds to get into the field, which I think is absolutely crucial because the internet was designed by and for sort of this main character, largely Bay Area, like honestly children of electrical engineers who moved out there from Boston to Silicon Valley in order to work for some of the defense companies out there. A lot of the big 90s era internet companies grew out of that. And that is a very specific demographic of wealthy, well-connected college kids. And at that time, the internet was brand new and represented an opportunity for a lot of people to have access who didn't have access before just due to the location dependence associated with applications at that time. Now, we've moved on 30 years and we're on a web that was built predominantly by and for that internet main character, which means that additional innovation in the tech field is going to have to come from folks who are not that main character. And for now, the relative accessibility of the profession, I think, gives us a chance at that that I think it's valuable for us to acknowledge and for us to take advantage of rather than discounting these other ways of, of getting into the profession. And the other thing is that I have not seen a particularly high correlation between quote unquote passion and quality work as an engineer. I've seen high quality code from folks who got into it for job security. I've seen high quality code for folks who got into it openly admitting that they were indifferent between software engineering and something else. And I've also seen passion cause problems on teams. I've seen passion result in people being unwilling to listen to other people's ideas, uncompromising on things where another perspective really was important. I think we glorify these stories of passion, but I think we often also misattribute the origins of some of the most groundbreaking ideas in web development and software engineering. And so a lot of those stories about impassioned leaders who insisted on nothing less and created a billion dollar company or what have you, they're not really true stories. They're situations in which history has identified an individual who represents the efforts of thousands and thousands of other people. And very often, acquisitions of other organizations that are responsible for the things that this genius person is attributed for. And those efforts happen as a collective. 
And I think that focusing on this narrative of an individual with passion misses a lot of the teamwork skills that go into getting anything done on a large scale. Because at the end of the day, it's never one person. The momentous changes happen as a result of a collaboration between often a large number of people. I agree with so many things that you just said. I mean, there's just so many times in the beginning of my career where I felt like I was less than because I didn't have this drive to go home at five or six or honestly seven at the startups, you know, and just keep coding, forget eating, forget like working out, like just keep coding. Like that was just the mentality. And I have so many other hobbies (laughs) that I felt like, you know, I couldn't pursue because I was supposed to be coding. So it's absolutely accurate that you can love what you do or maybe do what you do and be really good at it and then go from there. There are all types. And I personally very much appreciate working with people who are interested in so many different things because it gives us so many different perspectives for sure. And you are into so many different things as well. We were looking at your website, chelseatroy.com. Can you tell us a little bit about your goals with that website? What is the main goal? Is it like, you know, to find folks to work with or to work for or projects to kind of get off the ground? Mm -hmm. The goal with my blog has changed over time. When I first started that blog many years ago, the idea was to record what I was learning as I was learning it for my own future reference and also because I found that writing helps me to solidify my understanding of things in my mind. So a lot of those early pieces were focused very much on that. And as I started to gain experience in the industry, I got to the point where I knew what I was doing more than I had before, but I had a tough time getting coworkers to believe that I knew what I was talking about. And that blog provided an opportunity for me outside of my work for external validation from folks who could learn from what I had learned. And then after a while, the blog, I sort of continued to gain experience, sort of started to gain more respect for my colleagues, honestly. And at that point, the main benefit of the blog, I would say, kind of changed again to being a place where I had the opportunity to articulate my thoughts on stuff that I was learning with the purpose of developing new frameworks for understanding in particular amorphous concepts. So it was no longer about recording what I'd heard from someone else. It was no longer about sort of establishing that I knew things. And instead, the blog became... From the perspective of someone who its readers already trusted to know things, a framework for thinking about stuff that, particularly amorphous concepts that that folks can struggle with, and that's kind of where we are today. A lot of the pieces that I have now, I don't do as many one-offs. The vast majority of my posts are now parts of series that I do. So I have a series on the RAF distributed consensus algorithm that I implemented from scratch in Python. I have a series that I'm working on right now about the process of building a compiler and the different pieces of a compiler. And I have found that the blog now gives me an opportunity to publish, in essence, longer works, but with time to stop and think about them in the middle an opportunity to publish things in a length that extends past what typically one post would cover, but maybe not as long as a book. 
one of the things that I struggle with with regard to, for example, traditional publishing is that there is a traditional length that a book is supposed to be. And as authors are working on creating a book of that length, they'll have to figure out how to create additional content to reach that length. But I think that length is also frequently longer than what somebody is looking for to find out what they need to know about a topic. And I found that the blog series is a good length for me for a lot of those topics. And the other advantage to it is that some of these particularly more technical concepts that I write about, they're things that people have to take in bite-sized chunks and then think about in between anyway. And so the fact that there's a lag of time in between post one, post two, post three, post four doesn't end up being a hindrance and actually gives people a natural stopping point to go and reflect on the material and then come back to the next part when they are ready in these sort of granular chunks. But the goal of the blog has never been external. I have asked people for feedback on Twitter on what I should write about, but I have never actually used it. I have always determined what I am going to write on there based on what it will be most helpful for me to write about in terms of developing my own skills. And it just so happens that a lot of times the pieces that come out of that also help other people develop their skills. Now, as a side effect of that, I have gotten client work through the blog. I have had folks who became employers reach out to me because of my blog. And I think that the blog has created some validation of my skills for employers who've ended up hiring me in the past, but none of those things were ever the reason for writing it. And for that reason, I have a very hard time giving people advice about how to blog because when folks ask me for advice about how to blog, generally their goals are things like, I want to get X number of readers per month. I want to get paid clients from my blog. How do I do that? And the truth is, I don't No, that was never something that I was trying to do. I wrote my blog consistently when no one read and when one person read and when four people read and when one of the pieces happened to get shared and on that occasion, 12 people read. But to me, none of that mattered. And four years later, I looked at the analytics one day and like a few hundred people were reading it. I was just sort of like, when did all these people get here? The motivation for the blog for me has always been intrinsic. And so I have never even developed any skills around marketing a blog or anything like that because every piece on there would be exactly the same as it is right now if nobody ever read that website. That's really interesting to think about. I've read a lot of, or I've maybe more accurately watched a lot of videos on like how to grow a YouTube channel or how to grow a blog just because I'm curious about what that process looks like. And honestly, if I were even to start thinking about a blog or YouTube channel, the idea of everything that you have to do to become successful just becomes so daunting that I don't even start. I love this idea of you just kind of getting started to do it for yourself. I love that. Do it for yourself. And then you know what comes, comes. You mentioned a lot of technical things there. And it just made me realize I'm not even actually sure what stack you're working in right now. I became aware of you at CodeBeam. We were both speakers at CodeBeam. You were keynoting 2021 for, you know, future listeners. Would what love time? To- <laughs> time is a construct, as Eric knows uh, earlier today, talking about time. <laughs> um, but because obviously this is an Elixir podcast, have you worked with it at all? Or are you like, have you looked at Erlang or any of the other Beam languages? You spoke at CodeBeam, so I'm assuming there is some kind of relation there. <laughs> so I've worked a little bit in those languages. My career has 
bounced around a whole bunch of different languages. So at the University of Chicago, for example, I taught an iOS development course that taught Swift and some Objective-C for a while. Now I teach a mobile software development course that teaches Swift, and it also teaches Kotlin. Back in the day, I wrote a lot of Android apps in Java, and some of my clients that I have now also are in Java. I've written a lot of server stuff in Ruby. I've written a fair amount of data science machine learning code in Python. I've also written some web type of stuff in Python. I've written some in .NET and a whole bunch of JavaScript across all kinds of different frameworks. But chiefly, I have found that a lot of the strength that I draw in my writing and in my teaching comes from the parallels that I can identify between different programming languages and programming paradigms. Because each of these different language communities has different approaches to writing code. Sometimes it's the case that you can end up with a local maximum in one language community for solving a problem when another programming language community has an approach that would be useful to the first language community. And being able to identify those connections has helped me a lot. And it's one of the reasons that I have never really tried to niche down what programming language I'm writing. So much as I have focused rather on what kinds of problems I want to solve and then remaining open to whatever tooling is going to be the best for that problem at that time. That makes a lot of sense. And we've heard a lot of people take that approach. And I actually appreciate that because you often see people, we're guilty of it as Elixir enthusiasts, who just automatically assume like Elixir is going to be the solution. Phoenix is going to be the solution. Live view is the new big thing. Like that has to be the thing that will work for us. So I really do appreciate that you've had so many different experiences over a wide breadth of languages, and you can kind of figure out what makes sense per solution. So what are you doing that lets you solve those kind of problems? Totally. So at the moment, I am a software engineer at Pocket. Pocket is owned by Mozilla. It's an app that allows you to currently like save stuff that you're reading on the web and organize it so that you'll be able to read it later. There's a really cool feature on our mobile app that allows you to listen to your articles. So I do a lot of listening to articles in the morning while I'm like brushing my teeth or making my breakfast or whatever. And it helps me stay up, honestly, on like the zeitgeist of programming stuff a lot more because there's just a limited amount that I can look at a screen. So being able to listen to it is really nice. So that's my little plug for Pocket. You don't have to pay for the app, by the way, to get that free version has that in there. That's where I work. For my day job, I teach, like I mentioned, a few classes at the University of Chicago. Teaching, I feel like if I am going to have an impact in the tech community as a 10x developer, I'm going to do it not by shipping 10 times as much code as somebody else, but rather by enabling 10 times as much to get done through my empowerment of other people. Teaching feels like it's going to be a really big part of that. I love teaching. I find a lot of purpose in teaching. Teaching, I taught all five quarters of the pandemic. And I think that being able to design classes and teach during the pandemic was for me, it was a joy and it was a coping mechanism. And it helped me get through that time in a way that I think would have been much harder for me if I weren't doing that. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that I have a consultancy I work specifically with clients who are 
working on advancing basic scientific research or trying to improve access to resources for underserved communities. And I've sort of done everything in that capacity from machine learning model development to mobile application development. Right now, it happens to be a lot of mobile application development. I've also done some coaching for software engineers through that. Like a company will come and they'll say, we have really good engineers. We need them to write an app in blah, blah, blah language that they don't happen to know really well. We want to help them get up to speed. Will you come in and do some coaching? And so I do some engagements like that, which has been a lot of fun. So that's sort of my professional world, at least that has been my professional world up until now. Now that the lockdown is lifting, we'll see if that shifts at all. But a lot of my clients, for example, are grant funded and grant funding slowed down a little bit during the pandemic, which had an impact on the client work. And so I'm curious to see what happens now. But it's been an interesting time to figure out how to help maintain things, you know, sometimes in the absence of grants and how do you make that kind of thing work. One thing that sort of came out of that consultancy that I didn't plan on at the beginning, but I have really, really enjoyed is that a lot of my clients either had open source software or they were willing to be open source software. That gives me the opportunity to live stream, and this is the YouTube channel, I'll live stream like working on some of my client work. And over time, those streams shifted from, I'm just going to turn on OBS and you can watch me work and I'll try to talk through it as best I can. I'm pretty good at talking through what I'm doing because I spent the first few years of my career as a pair programmer where you have to say everything you're thinking. I was pretty good at that to begin with. And slowly over time, those streams did kind of shift from, hey, join me if you want while I work to actually identifying a skill that I wanted to help people build identifying a story or a ticket or a feature that would help me demonstrate that skill and then thinking about ahead of time, how do I want to teach it? What illustrations do I want to have in place? And using that feature development process as effectively an object lesson for people who wanted to watch my YouTube video about it. And those ended up being much tighter streams. They tend to be a little bit shorter. They're more focused and they'll teach like one skill, for example, oh, let's talk about the way that we handle static methods in like a model object as we build this feature into this mobile app or something like that. And so those will be like 50 and 60 minute streams as opposed to some of the three hour ones that I was doing at the beginning. So I want to know more about how you found your passion for teaching and how that led you into teaching in higher ed. I would say that teaching should be a passion. So it's really nice to hear that it is a passion of yours. It's just an interesting path. And I just kind of wonder more about how you found yourself on it. I come from a long line of teachers. My mom was a university professor and my dad's mom taught English for 45 years or something like that. And so I very much kind of grew up with it in my family, which I think was was a nice advantage to have. My dad was also, he wasn't a teacher by profession, but he would sit down with me and help me do my homework every night until I was out of grade school, which was, I think, very instructive for me and a privilege that I did not treasure at the time, but I do treasure in retrospect. But it was something I always thought I was kind of interested in doing, but not something that I explicitly pursued. I happened to go to a conference where one of the other attendees 
happened to be an academic director at the University of Chicago. And they have lecturer positions that they specifically attempt to open in the master's program in computer science for folks who are working in industry because they want the students to have access to those industry perspectives. So he sent a message to a list that we were both on about one of those openings. And I decided, well, I might as well. I might as well apply. I might as well give it a try. And I looked at the application and they wanted my resume or curriculum vitae. And they wanted, I think it might've been a cover letter. And optionally, we could send in a sample syllabus. And I thought to myself, well, I can write a cover letter. That's fine. But as far as my curriculum vitae goes, it's not going to be particularly impressive. I did not go to the University of Chicago. A lot of people applying for this position are going to be alumni of the university. I don't have a graduate degree of any kind. My undergraduate degree is not in computer science. And so by all categorical measures, I am not qualified for this position. I don't have the legitimacy by proxy for a position like this. So I figured I probably wasn't going to get it. But in the process, I decided I was going to prove that these legitimacy by proxy metrics were a problem. Because this is what I like to do, is walk in with a chip on my shoulder when nobody even said anything to me. I don't do this anymore, but in my 20s, this was my attitude. And so you'll recall that the application allowed us to optionally include a sample syllabus. So I sent in a sample syllabus with every lesson we would do, every reading assignment we would have, the learning goals of the reading assignment, the overall arc of the class, just absolutely everything that I could think of that would go, in my opinion, on a good sample syllabus. So I got moved on to the sample lecture round. And I came in with my sample lecture. And for my sample lecture, I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to demonstrate how to implement a feature in Android. But I was worried that I was going to mess up live coding because live coding, I mean, live coding scares me, first of all. Second of all, Humans are fallible. There's not really a way to guarantee that you're not going to mess up live coding. And third, I think, and I experienced this in, in the programming classes that I took. Unfortunately, if your students have very little familiarity with the syntax, you can very easily lose them with even a very minor mistake. They need to see it exactly right. And if you're not able to produce for them exactly the right thing, like saying you get the idea doesn't really work because they don't get the idea. It's very easy to lose them. So to get around this, I decided that I was going to identify what steps I wanted to do in the feature development process. And at each step, I was going to make a commit. And then I was going to back up to the first commit in my lecture. And then I was going to move forward commit by commit and explain what I was doing. And then make the code available, of course, to the students. And so I came in for my sample lecture, extremely prepared, and did this whole lecture uh, about this Android app and what we were going to do, all the different lines in it and all that kind of thing. And I came out of that thinking, all right, well, I'm not going to get this job, but at least I have proven that it's not because I can't do it. And then to my surprise, they wanted me to teach there, and now I do. So that's that's <laughs> kind of the whole story there. I didn't really expect things to work out the way they did, but I taught one quarter in person, and I taught somebody else's class. It was not my own class. The next year, I had the opportunity to design a class, but what we did not know as I was designing that class initially was that teaching was going to happen remotely because of the pandemic. And we found out with two weeks 
to the start of the spring that all of the classes were going to be on Zoom, which meant, in my view, redesigning elements of the class to work well in a remote setting in a way that they would not work in a co-located setting. Because I think this might be an unpopular opinion, but I think that there are certain things, and in particular in programming, I think there are certain things that a remote class has the opportunity to do better than a co-located class. Big example being pair programming and group programming, because it can be really ergonomically challenging to huddle two, three, or four people around a single computer. And it's cost prohibitive to expect to have a computer lab available for every class with external monitors available for everyone. People just bring their laptop to class and that's how computers work. But if you're on a Zoom, you can have one person share their screen from their laptop. Everybody can see it from their own laptop. Nobody's got to be like over anybody else's shoulder and those kinds of things. And so that's just one example. But my approach to remote teaching has very much been, it hasn't been like, how do we shore up all of the weaknesses of this medium, but rather, how do we leverage the strengths of this medium to make teaching computer science a more engaging experience on Zoom than it might even be in person? That's produced a lot of benefits, I think, for the design of the class. That's fabulous to hear, because I think most of what I've heard in the past 15 months has just been how virtual learning is really difficult. Not to say that you're not saying it isn't difficult, but that there are benefits to it too, which we need to be grateful for because otherwise I don't even know what would have happened. I noticed on your website, you've worked in a lot of different languages and you have, I think, a few posts about functional versus object-oriented languages. What do you see as a few pros and cons for each category? So this is a good question because I think that in programming, we sometimes fall into this trap of trying to identify one approach as categorically better than another approach. And I think that in my career, at least, I have been better served by answering a different question, which is, in what situations would this approach be a better fit? And in what situations would that approach be a better fit? And I think that between functional programming versus object-based programming, I think we run into a little bit of that too. The appropriate use of one or the other sort of depends on your use case. So the thing that's really nice about an object-based approach is that there's relatively little friction in the direction of adding new types of objects. Whereas in the functionally oriented approach, there's relatively little friction in terms of adding new behavior to the types that already exist. And so the very short version of this is that, and there's a whole piece on the blog, of course, if you want to see me really get really wax poetic about it, but is that within a given system and even within given parts of a system, one approach might make sense over the other. So the question I like to ask as I'm building out a new part of the system is, in the future, how is this part of the system most likely to change? Am I more likely to want to add more types to this? Is the client going to want more types here? 
Or is the grain of change on this part of the system more likely to be new behavior? I'll use a functionally oriented approach if I think the direction, the grain of change is going to be towards new behavior. And maybe a more object-based approach if the grain of change is going to be more towards adding new types. Now, of course, that decision is constrained a little bit by the language that I am using. There are very few purely functional or purely object-based languages. And so I think most languages are maybe object-oriented with some ability to do functional or functionally oriented with some ability to do objects. And that, in particular, now that we're using more of those higher order languages more of the time, that gives me a lot more freedom to figure out how I want to orient a particular piece of code. For example, if I'm using Java, like at this point, if I'm using Java 8 or Java 9, I've got options for each of those two. Whereas in something like Python, like in Python, functional programming can be done. But the design of the language just does not optimize for functional programming, which is not a weakness of the language necessarily. It is a design decision that the people who wrote Python very deliberately made based on the use cases where they saw Python being used. And so constrained certainly by the language and the framework, that's how I'll tend to think about solving problems in a functional versus an object-based way. I have one follow-up to that. In teaching, whether that's in a classroom, in person, or virtual, or even on a live stream, have you found that one functional versus object-oriented is picked up easier by people who are learning it? Yes. And I think it's a little bit different for my mobile software development students versus my Python programming students. My Python programming students tend to come in with a little bit less background. Python programming is their first core programming class. Mobile software development is an elective. Those students have already taken a core programming class, and so they just have more reps of coding under their belt, which makes it easier for them to digest new kinds of programming. Mobile software development, they learn two languages, two frameworks, and two IDEs, and they do it all in nine weeks. I could not ask that of people in their first core programming class. I'd be absurd, you know? But it's already absurd even for the people I ask it of. So, but they do a good job. I'm very proud of my students. They get in there and they do a good job. But with Python programming, once again, it's an interesting situation because I'm constrained in that case by the language. There are just not that many functional constructs in Python. And the other thing is that I think in their immersion programming classes and the prerequisites that they're taking to my Python programming class, they generally just have more experience with the object-oriented approach. They tend to have less of a hard time wrapping their heads around that in part because at that point, they just have a lot more reps in that kind of a, of a construct. So I will tend to do that one first. Now, in Python programming, we do do both. And the reason that we're doing that is that it's the core programming class. The point isn't for them to learn Python. The point is for them to learn programming constructs. We happen to be using Python, but they can also fulfill that requirement in Java. They can fulfill it, I think, in C++. They have other options. So it's important to cover it. And so we will cover it after we do object-oriented programming. And in general, the example in Python that I will use for that is the decorator, because the decorator is one of the only places in Python where the benefits of functional programming make themselves clear. Because one of the benefits of functional programming is having the opportunity to layer behavior on top of behavior and say, like, 
I have a method that will do something five times. And I'm going to pass into it a method that contains the actual operation that I want done five times. And we have map and filter in Python, but those operations on a list don't always necessarily demonstrate the power of the functional programming construct in the way that I would like. And the decorator is the best way that I found to do that. I'm looking for others. I would say it's a little bit of a there I fixed it kind of situation where it's not exactly what I'm looking for, but that's the best I have found so far. I just want to say that I think the feeling is mutual between at least myself and Sunday and probably Eric too, that we wish you would have taught us a class when <laughs> we were in college. I think if I had a professor like you who had done that intro course for me, I think I would have been on much better foot <laughs> to begin with. I mean, it's not too late. <laughs> We've got folks in there. We had folks in there in their 30s and their 40s. We have parents. It's always fun to see people's kids like while they're taking class. And I'll never forget, I had this one office hours and this parent showed up. He was working on his final project. And he was very focused on it. And as he is laser focused on his final project, I watch his four-year-old walk up behind him with a pool noodle raised aloft and start banging on a piano with it. <laughs> And this poor parent is just trying to ignore that as he finishes his final project. I will never forget that. (laughs) You can only imagine what happens when he's not coming to office hours and the four-year-old is just running around at home. Oh my gosh. Just that image is burned in my brain forever. Education is continuous though. It's a good reminder. It is. We're too late. Chelsea, do you have any final plugs, asks for the audience? You know, I do a lot of writing at ChelseaTroy.com. Chelsea, like the neighborhood in New York. Troy, like Helen of Troy. And there's not that much to buy on there. Maybe a book or a class here or there. But for the most part, I just sort of write there. And I hope that folks find it useful. I have read a few of them. And they're like topics fast, very interesting. So I would encourage people to go take a peek. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview, a brief segment where we showcase someone from the community at a company using Elixir in production and how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the mini feature segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Alex Hausend, and today we're speaking with Rosemary Ledesma, a software engineer at RentPath. Welcome to the podcast, Rosemary. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to have you here. If you could just jump right in, how did you find yourself to be a software engineer? When I talk to other people, it seems most people have a pretty obvious trajectory where, you know, they had some kind of aha moment where it seemed like a ray of light shone on a computer or something. Uh, It definitely wasn't the case for me. It's true. My father was a programmer of sorts, but in a kind of a different epoch because, um, He had children quite late in life, and so his idea of programming involved punch cards and magnetic tapes, and we had a lot of punch cards around the house growing up. But also, we always had computers growing up, even though I'm sufficiently old that it wasn't ubiquitous when I was very small. It was somewhat rare to have computers. So I definitely had exposure from a very young age. That being said, I had a lot of interests as a kid, and it definitely wasn't a focus for me. And my degree in college was actually in English. At one point, I wanted to be a a biologist. So it certainly wasn't like a really clear and obvious uh, trajectory for me. But 
During college, I was already working on building websites and doing some programming as my side gigs while I was an undergraduate. And so after graduating, I, I continued with that. And my first real job was with Warner Brothers. I was there for quite a long time, nine years. That's why I moved to Los Angeles from originally New York. And I was working on various optical media formats. And they're all implemented with programming, although it's uh, proprietary and in some cases quite primitive. DVDs, believe it or not, are written in assembler language. So I worked on all those different formats. And at the end of my stint there, I was actually doing Java for the Blu-ray discs. After that, I transitioned into doing backend web development, and now I find myself writing Elixir. Well, you introduced a great segue. How did you go from Warner Brothers, DVDs, Blu-rays, and Java? How did you find Elixir? Was it kind of just happenstance, fate? Was it a purposeful decision? It makes. I felt, I, I think correctly, that optical media was hitting its sunset. Blu-ray never really had the sizzle that people were hoping for. I mean, you could just tell that it was, it was on the way out and streaming was the future. While I was at Warner Brothers, I, I definitely would write a script here and there, you know, in addition to the programming on the actual discs themselves, which was a whole adventure. But um, web is not going anywhere. We're going to be doing some kind of interactions over the internet and probably until we die and beyond our, our lives. Uh, so that seemed like something with more of a future. And it was a little bit of a rough transition because I had been working with purely proprietary systems that really didn't translate into anything outside of the company. But uh, I worked it out and I ended up doing, uh, first it was it was more Ruby, but the company I'm with now is, is trying to phase out Ruby in favor of Elixir. It's just a really exciting language that lets us, well, first off, we get a lot of performance with very little effort. Secondly, it's, uh, it's just honestly, it's fun. And thirdly, we are finding that we are part of an exciting community and able to find really up-and-coming, innovative people to join our, our team as a consequence of making this shift. There's a few things kind of bouncing around my brain. And the first one is I totally agree with you. Working in Elixir, is it's just fun. It's the first time I've been like, this is fun. And I really enjoy it. Second, I think the the path from Ruby to Elixir is one that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And third, you're so right. Blu-ray just never really took off like people wanted it to. I remember when it was the new big thing, but also remember nobody being really excited about it. And now here we are with, you know, six streaming services or what have you. I'm not exactly happy with how things turned out. <laughs> you know, I think no one is with the streaming wars. but. I felt like a good way to get a feeling for something is how people react in a cocktail party when you mention a topic. The impression I take away is meaningful. And when people would say, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I work on Blu-ray discs. They'd go, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, there wasn't that excitement. It transitioned from what is that to, oh, yeah, okay. It was never like, wow, you know, so. Right. And you think to yourself, oh, man, maybe, maybe it's my time to leave. Yeah, yeah. You touched on it briefly. You're transitioning from Ruby to Elixir at RentPath. Could you give us a brief elevator pitch for what RentPath does? We started around 2016, actually, with starting to implement some stuff with Elixir. We stuck our toe in with microservices because we do have a microservice architecture, and that makes it easy to start building something out in a language you haven't used before and still have it be real, you know, have it be part of your actual production system. So that's how we got our, our start. And also um, 
pretty close to the beginning there, I was part of building this in-house tool that that was full stack, but wasn't customer facing, that was for managing deployments, kicking off and managing deployments. And that was really fun. I got to do a lot of stuff with processes. As we continue, we're having more and more of our, our microservices being written in Elixir, and we're even getting to the point of starting to switch off some of our Ruby apps in favor of an Elixir version. We're trying to take pains to avoid doing any new development that's not in Elixir. That being said, we do have other teams like the data science people are using Python and we have people using Clojure too. So it's not like one language across the board by no means, but we're trying to phase out Ruby and I think we're also phasing out Go. Not really doing much with that either. Well, and that's hard too, because as you phase out of one language, there's always still this maintenance phase, right, with anything. Mm -hmm. So you are still continuing to work in another language, but at least they're two functional languages. So I feel like the context switching is probably a little less hard, but I don't want to obviously speak for that. I think switching context between Ruby and Elixir isn't the problem. What's the problem is trying to open up a project that no one's been maintaining in Ruby for a couple of years. Uh, That feels bad. (laughs) Yeah. It's like everybody's uh, everybody's worst nightmare when you open up a code base that has really poor documentation and hasn't been updated in a while. It's a bit daunting. Could you give us a brief description of what RentPath does? Sure. Yeah, RentPath's in the real estate space, and we have several websites for folks who would like to find a property to rent or list one available to rent. We've recently, actually, very recently, just got bought by Redfin. So now we're also able to offer solutions for people who want to buy or sell a home. That means we're able to reach more customers, both, once again, who are looking to find a place to live or who want to list something. That's cool. Is there any desire to eventually do more in the Redfin space or will it be RentPath will continue to be its own entity? This is all really new. You know, we literally just got married or whatever. Uh, we're in the honeymoon <laughs> phase. Um, but right now we're, we're mostly interested in sharing data. But And we don't have any, um, at least I'm not aware of the clear, any clear course ahead that is going to be visible to anyone really, other than just more rich data for all the purposes that we have in common. Cool. Well, I mean, I live in DC where real estate is always booming seemingly. So I know that that's an industry that really has nowhere to go but up, I would say. Mm. I want to end on a fun question. If you weren't a software engineer, what would you be? Would you be a a biologist who writes books? (laughs) Oh, that would be great. Uh, This question is very hard for me because I I have so many uh, passions and I keep adding new ones. A friend was just telling me, uh, and I, I share this with him, it's like, if anything's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. So I get very excited about things and jump in really hard. Right now I'm learning Italian and I'm practically fluent, but also I'm super into wildlife photography and very uh, advanced level hiking and a ton of other stuff. So one possible fantasy scenario is traveling around the world, photographing rare animals. (laughs) I could definitely see myself lying in a duck blind for days to get that one picture of that one bird, you know. That's so cool. That's incredible. We've asked this question to a lot of people and a lot of them have answers that are in the creative space in that field. I think we've had the photography answer before, but the wildlife photography is a totally new spin. That would be awesome. When I look into the eyes of a wild animal and I know that it has no use for me, like they don't care one bit about humans. They live their own mysterious existence that, you know, is irrelevant to us. Uh, It's a different experience. I feel like my heart stops. (laughs) It's hard to explain. That's beautiful, though. Thank you for sharing. That's lovely. 
Well, Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, if you or your company are using Elixir in an interesting way and want to come on the show for a mini feature, we would love to have you. Reach out to us at podcast at smartlogic.io with your name, your company's name, and how you're using Elixir. 